This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. The Warehouse Group is home to some of New Zealand's biggest retail brands, including The Warehouse, Noleeming, and Torpedo 7. COVID-19 has hit the group with unprecedented challenges, including lockdowns, lost trading days, and global supply chain disruptions. And yet, despite these headwinds, it has continued to post solid results. We're joined by Warehouse Group CEO Nick Grayston and CFO Jonathan Oram to discuss how technology and data science are transforming the business. And they look ahead to how retail could be impacted by rising living costs and the reopening of New Zealand's borders. Nick begins by outlining his experience with some of the world's largest retailers before he took the helm at the Warehouse Group in 2016. You know, I, I am by background a retailer. I've been in retail quite a lot of years. Um, but, you know, grew up in UK retail, MS Sevens, River Island, uh, Woolworth UK, um, Laura Ashley, a whole, whole bunch of UK retailers. Then I spent 10 years in uh, in Foot Locker, ended up running all of the US business out of New York, uh, then spent eight years with Sears Holdings, and, you know, then Glid Sears and Kmart. And I ended up running sort of, if you like, the, the, the soft half. You know, all of the apparel, um, you know, homewares, um, mattresses, fine jewelry, uh, footwear. Um, and uh, that was an interesting time and sort of quite important in, as to why the board chose me. And, uh, you know, my background uh, is mostly on the sort of uh, product side. But really coming out of Foot Locker, I, ha- I had this sort of epiphany. This was at the time the GFC that, you know, I got, uh, you know, sort of 25 years of, of retail experience and you know yet there was this whole thing called e-commerce and you know I really knew very little about it so you know I spent a lot of time re-educating myself and you know it, it, it was the most interesting time to be in a legacy retailer uh, when I was at Sears and and overall the the challenge for legacy retailers is you know how to become digital quicker than Amazon can learn to be a merchant and certainly in, in the US context but that's sort of spreading globally and you know when you're f- fighting someone like Amazon in the US you're, you're sort of one hand tied behind your back because they don't have the sort of burden of physical stores which has a heavy overhead and uh, you know able to operate completely differently and uh, born digital and so it's been very interesting as a as a global perspective to look at uh, how that battle has played out and you go back sort of 10 years or so and sort of legacy retail was going to get showroomed out of existence they couldn't possibly compete with amazon on price and you know interestingly i think it was best buy that first showed the way that you do it which is you match amazon on price you use your physical locations um, to be able to get price Product to the customer quicker than Amazon can out of their more centralized locations. Uh, and, you know, sort of true omnichannel becomes part of that because they can pick up from those locations. But also you use your people to give experiences that, that they weren't able to do. And so that was really the backdrop with which I, I came into the warehouse group, sort of mixture between thinking that there were some basic merchandising flaws that uh, were not being uh, uh, fixed, particularly in, in the family the business, the warehouse itself, 
plus sort of, you know, they're, they're, at the time I joined, there were 21 constituent companies sort of loosely organized into six different areas without any sort of integration plan. The, the business had been on a sort of buying, buying frenzy uh, without having sort of placed a, uh, you know, a strategy in place to do so. And each of those businesses uh, included things like the Torpedo 7 Group and One Day and Number One Fitness and Shotgun Supplements. You know, all these different com companies had their own uh, system stacks that they'd grown up with. And, you know, each of them had their own merchandising operations, IT, HR, marketing. Um, and there were only 10 people in the sort of central group. And so, you know, they, we went through a, a very purposeful year of strategy, uh, strategy creation and discussion and came up with five options that we went through a fairly detailed process to agree a start point with the board. And we've really been in transformation. And, and in essence, the board did not want to divest all of those acquisitions. They wanted to find a way of integrating them into a, a strategy that worked. And so, you know, it, it put most simply, you know, the what we really needed to do is firstly fix the retail fundamentals and secondly invest in the digital future. And the third part of that is sort of bringing that all together into a cohesive ecosystem. And so if, if you think about, you know, how the world is developed and Amazon in the US is instructive and, you know, when, when, you've, when you've lived in a, a sort of in, in the US and, you know, 110 million households have Amazon Prime, um, you know, it, it's instructive to understand that 71% of product purchases in the US start with a prime-enabled Amazon search. Only the second search is non-prime-enabled and the third search is Google. And so Google has been disintermediated by Amazon as it relates to product search. And interestingly as well, Amazon now is one of the major uh, uh, major generators of revenue, 30 billion globally, from using that traffic to, to harvest advertising revenue. And so for your prime uh, fee, you get uh, around 30 different values. The, it starts with the, the foundational free two-day shipping. Um, and then, you know, it also includes things like access to the second biggest content producer in terms of Amazon Prime and all sorts of other things like, you know, music storage and photo storage and all the rest of it. And so that's why it's become the sort of first top of mind thing that, uh, that you go to if you're embedded in that ecosystem. But then you start to look at how China operates. And, you know, that whole ecosystem um, philosophy is far more built out. And uh, if you think about, you know, a billion Chinese living all of their lives on the, we on the WeChat ecosystem or, or the, you know, sort of the Ali group of companies, you know, th that one killer app, WeChat, is where you communicate, you buy things, uh, you do your banking, you book your travel, you book your insurance, um, you know, now includes QCOM, quick commerce, where, you know, in, in most major cities, you can get things between 15 and 25 minutes. Um, and so, you know, the Chinese ecosystems are far more built out than, um, than the, uh, the Western ones. Um, but what's also become apparent in that time, a bit like Best Buy, is that physically, there is an advantage to having physical locations. And that's one thing Amazon hasn't fully nailed 
failed yet. They've closed a lot of their traditional stores and they've only kept their, their convenience stores. And they've, they've publicly said that they will only open stores when there's a, a something that they can do that's different. But omnichannel has really become a thing. And if you think about the journey customers go through, it's really vitally important that they uh, are able to be recognized and treated equally at every touch point. And so as we've thought about um, the, the whole sort of how do you solve the retail conundrum and build a moat for the warehouse group with all of those properties, the fixing of the retail fundamentals, which involves sort of going from this sort of archaic high-low pricing where you artificially inflate the prices on goods and, uh, you know, you have four of everything and one week out of the month, it's come on in, there's a 50 off sale promoted by paper through your letterbox. And uh, that then, uh, you know, it goes to the price that it should be and the rest of the other three weeks, it doesn't sell at all because it's artificially inflated in price. You know, that's, that game is up in the US and uh, it's starting to not fool people anymore here. And so that move to everyday low price also had the benefit of taking out three quarters of the uh, of the option count, which meant that you got four times the buying power on what was left. We built out the, the uh, sourcing capability so that we were able to take out agents and be able to um, uh, source things direct, which meant that we could take out the commission that those agents took and buy a better price and buying four times as much gave us much more negotiating ability. Plus buying direct enables us to build those uh, relationships with suppliers in the Orient. We, you know, in addition to our Shanghai office, we offer uh, we work in satellite offices in uh, in India and Bangladesh, which is where that uh, you know uh, uh, is the biggest producer of apparel now in the world. And so, you know, that was all part of sort of fixing the retail fundamentals. In addition, um, we have a situation where we've you know had all these uh, systems that came with the businesses we bought, most of which were sort of green screen on prem. 30-year-old systems. And so we're still in the process of renovating those, but we're starting to develop to, to deliver some major parts of it. We've re-platformed the websites in Red, Blue, and, uh, and Knowles. Um, we're delivering a warehouse. Yeah, what, just what, um, what are the, sorry to cut you off, but what are the businesses that you do own? Just um, just so that the audience here is sort of clear on where warehouse is today and, and then please carry on. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, obviously there's the warehouse and uh, warehouse stationery. Um, then uh, we bought Noel Leeming uh, quite some years ago. We also own Torpedo 7. Um, and so, you know, Torpedo 7 came with sort of all various different bits that Guy and Luke had, had created, uh, most of which we folded in or, or closed. But it was, it was a pure digital business. We, we see an opportunity in stores and that goes to the omnichannel element of it. And then I guess most excitingly, uh, in, in order to sort of be able to capture people's uh, needs and wants, we founded a business called The Market. Uh, which is, you know, as we said in our, our presentation, it's going to be over 100 million GTV this year uh, and represents about 20% of, of the market. Um, so, uh, you know, that's a very exciting and dynamic business. Um, but um, sort of, I, I'll, I'll pause here because it feels like I've sort of thrown a lot at you. But uh, um, we, we are in the process of our transformation. We are heavily into the systems renovation element of it. A lot of major programs delivered this year, um, but we are starting to build out the sort of wider ecosystem that is sort of really uh, anchored in customer experiences. And I guess that's the, the sort of the last part of it, that 
we realized that uh, it wasn't possible to achieve what we wanted to achieve and become digital under sort of historical methods of command and control. And so we made the decision 18 months ago to go agile. And um, so, you know, all digital companies pretty much operate using agile methodologies. And so, you know, we fundamentally changed the operating process of the company and went from about 12 different layers of hierarchy to simply three in, in our office. And uh, that enables us to be much more nimble, much more rapid, and to be able to reallocate our resources on a quarterly basis. You, Nick, you touched on the comment originally about legacy retail. Given digital has been around now for, I suppose, in reality, 10 to 15 years, is there such a thing as, as legacy digital? And, and you talk about the changing landscape. Does that give you an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, you know, sort of, yes, there's, there's legacy digital. And, you know, there's a lot of, particularly New Zealand companies like Torpedo 7, for example, that was, you know, is nearly 20 years old and was founded on historical uh, uh, system stacks that, you know, are now unsupportable. Um, and so having to renovate those and, you know, putting things like uh, enterprise, enterprise resource planning uh, through uh, through the business that have just been vital to, to give us the, the basis to, to be able to run those businesses and be able to sort of, you know, create middleware that enables us to, to update things dynamically. And as simple as sort of the ERP that we're putting in this year will, for example, take us from batch processing to real-time cloud inventory, which means that you sell one, it immediately down, uh, downgrades the amount that's held in the inventory record. That's really important if you want to give a customer the reassurance to know that they they can come in and buy it. Nick, there's um, different ways to, I guess, move into the digital and online market in terms of sales. Um, yeah, and, and the market as a business is one of them where you see that it's now doing over $100 million of product sales a year. Um, but also there's other, other, um, other options like click and collect, for example, and, and I know you did very well with that um, offering, particularly with Noel Lehman over, over the COVID period. Yeah, about half of our online business is now click and collect. And uh, why is that important? Well, you know, typically as you uh, deliver to, to customers' homes, you know, you can be anything between about five and 10 points worse in margin because of the cost of that last mile fulfillment, which is very expensive, especially in New Zealand where there aren't many options. You know, Post effectively has a, a monopoly. And so, um, you know, it, it's much more commercial effective and there's less margin degrading if you can get customers to come to your stores to pick it up. You know, we've done very well in Knowles with one hour click and collect, which gives customers the, the assurance that what they want will be there when they when they want it in, in a reasonable time frame. You know, we're sort of one day click and collect for things that are installed uh, in, in most of the other parts of the business, but looking at how we, how do we get that faster and then sort of starting to think about how we innovate that last mile to give much more visibility and uh, uh, and speed, you know, being able to flex between cost and speed is going to be increasingly important. Um, but the other benefit of click and collect is that there's a halo when customers come into our stores to pick things up. Typically, they spend about three times more on other things that they buy when they're there. And, uh, you know, we're starting to make, to expand our grocery offer, for example, because there's a real need in, in New Zealand. And, you know, at this stage, we're sort of very much pick up items rather than a destination purchase. Um, but we'll see what the uh, the final government resolution on the Concom study brings in that respect. How many of your stores are now selling grocery type products? 
of the warehouse, 92 stores, all but about 15, to a greater or lesser extent. And, and that's more just sort of core staple type products, you know, you're not offering a full, uh, full solution. Yeah, but sort of what we'd say, it's called pantry, you know, sort of effectively sort of dry grocery, you know, not, not including frozen and fresh yet. Um, but, uh, you know, everything from, you know, 81 uh, cent spaghetti through to sugar and flour and, you know, chips and, you know. And I, and I know you put a statement out in your last results where you estimated there's a certain amount of saving that can be done from a traditional consumer by buying those products through the warehouse. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one thing the, uh, the ComCom investigation was clear about is the, the, the profits being made by the duopoly of supermarkets is unreasonable. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's obvious from the prices and you look at the comparison of prices compared to the rest of the OECD, even when you adjust the distance. And, you know, that that's not giving, competition's not working in New Zealand. They made that statement. Um, the question is, you know, what is going to fix it? And, you know, certainly we welcome greater regulation and codes, and mandatory codes of conduct. You know, we've got 15 stores that uh, we can't sell grocery in because of restrictive covenants. Uh, that sort of doesn't help the customer. But the biggest issue for us is, is access to wholesale. Until you get to scale, you're always going to be at a disadvantage. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the government does there. There wouldn't be too many businesses that have the retail footprint, such as the warehouse group, that could actually compete with um, the existing retail footprint that these two duopolies have in the in the supermarket industry. Yeah, 90% of New Zealanders live within 20 minutes of a warehouse, so that, that is true. Although, would, would there be a challenge if you wanted to convert to a more, um, a more full supermarket product? You still need more space. Yeah, we, we, are, we will not become a full supermarket offer. Um, you know, if you think about how we can best serve our, our, our very needy customers and, you know, they're, they're really doing it tough at the moment. And, you know, with inflation, disposable income has really gotten clobbered. You know, we, we are never going to be a full sort of destination supermarket again because our offer does more than that because we have all of the apparel and, and general merchandise that people need and can, they can get at the same time. Uh, but the opportunity to expand what we do do in the grocery uh, segment um, and probably mostly within the same footprint that we dedicate to grocery now would be more like sort of Aldi and Lidl. Um, so predominantly private label, vertically integrated, um, part, you know, taking thin margins to, to, uh, to give that value to customers. And that's, that's overall what the warehouse has always been about. It's been about value. And so especially now, Kiwis are relying on us to deliver value. And, uh, and so that, that's, you know, an essential part of, of what we do. Maybe this is a good segue into discussing um, more of the current events and, and actually what's been going on the last two years in your business and it's been an incredibly uh, volatile time for any retailer in the New Zealand market with um, rolling shutdowns and um, and then as we started to come out of that now, now we're faced by high inflation. Um, many businesses have prob um, problems getting product into New Zealand, uh, both logistical and due to high costs. So it'd be great to sort of hear about the warehouse group's experience over the last couple of years and, and then maybe we get on to how you're looking at the moment with um, rising inflation costs. I'm happy to give an overview and I'm maybe bringing Jonathan to give a bit more detail, but, you know, it's sort of, if you go back to the first lockdown, that, that was pretty brutal. And despite the fact that we sell a lot of grocery, the government ruled that, you know, the warehouse, for example, was not an essential service. And so we weren't able to open our stores in, in any parts of our business. Uh, we did do reasonably well with, um, 
uh, online sales and we went up to about 30% of, our, uh, of what we would normally expect to take. As a result of, you know, especially people preparing to work from home, homeschooling, uh, you know, building out their home offices. So, you know, benefits to Knowles and, uh, and uh, warehouse stationery in addition to, to, to rent. Um, but, you know, 30% is 30%. And yet when we did open up after that, uh, that period of intense lockdown, the market was very buoyant. There was a lot of government stimulus uh, with the original wage subsidy, which is, as I'm sure you know, we paid back uh, nearly 70 million um, because we saw such a strong bounce back uh, when we were able to open those stores. And so that really drove an abnormal year in FY21. Um, this latest lockdown that happened in our first half, we lost 23% of our trading days, 46% of the trading days in Auckland, with Auckland being locked down uh, longer. Um, that really made it a sort of tale of two quarters within the, the first half of FY22. Uh, first quarter was down 14.6%, second quarter up 2.8%. So overall, that brought us down, I think, 4.3% in sales you know in addition to that there were some specific uh, margin eroders like the cost of shipping you know typically for most places out of asia uh, a 20-foot container would cost you know anything between six and eight hundred dollars to ship we've seen prices go up to the sort of five six seven thousand dollars for those same containers and that's driven by you know a lot of uh, global demand as the world's opened up after covid uh, in addition, that's driven uh, cost price inflation in a lot of commodities. We're seeing up, you know, some fifty percent or more. You know, you, you'll have seen the price of gin. Thankfully, that doesn't affect us particularly, but you know, it, it, it's a sort of New Zealand scandal. But it, all through, we're seeing that cost price inflation, which has eroded margins a little. Plus, you know, as I'm sure Jonathan will go into, there, you know, we've taken some provisions for merchandise we didn't sell uh, during lockdown, which benefited last year that was non-repeatable. Um, but in addition, uh, over this lockdown, we made some choices in terms of our spending, sort of orders of magnitude around 15 million, where uh, we paid all our people through all of the lockdowns in full. Um, you know, we did not take the subsidy second time round. Secondly, uh, you know, th you know, social distancing measures, put, you know, uh, putting on um, additional precautions in our DC, for example, to keep uh, shifts set. Separate, um, you know, putting uh, plastic dividers in stores, greeters in stores to make sure that the, the, the people limits weren't exceeded and people were mask wearing and all the rest of it. Uh, you know, incentive to get vaccinated, rat tests uh, in, in, in our DC. So additional spending that we chose to do. Plus, there's sort of wage inflation that was higher than we budgeted, uh, you know, as a result of inflation. So, you know, a, a lot of headwinds that affected the uh, the first half trading. I guess most pleasingly for me, uh, all of the sort of central uh, transformational initiatives kept on track, um, and uh, we have continued to deliver those those foundational trans transitional um, programs, um, which could easily have gone off track. And had we not been agile probably would have done as people had to work from home but we've become very adept at you know at hybrid working and you know even when people can come back into the office they're probably unlikely to um but uh, you know so interesting dynamic jonathan do you want to give a little bit more detail on the first half i'm happy to come back and give a perspective on what's next 
Yeah, well, what I was going to touch on, Nick, as well, was um, the change to our focus on, on liquidity. So because going into the lockdown back, you know, you go back two years, end of H1, uh, FY20, we ended that half with $69 million of debt. Um, we had total facilities of 180, so $111 million of, of uh, headroom. And we had, an, had a bond uh, which was maturing in June of $125 million. So it actually was, um, as Nick alluded to, we, we were in complete uh, shutdown in terms of any selling anything. And that, that really brought into stark reality uh, the need to have greater liquidity um, in the business because, you know, with, with $50 million, for example, just in, in wages and salaries and rent costs a month, and, you know, call it 150 at least of trade creditors, you quickly run out of runway. And so what we've, what we've done now is we are targeting you know, total liquidity is 350 to $450 million. And um, that's, that's meaning that we're running a net cash position. Uh, but that's, you know, given the, 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 the construct of our business, we think that's um, the best liquidity uh, position to run with. So that's been quite a quite a change, um, and as Nick alluded to, in terms of uh, in terms of you know, freight, that is that has been one of the major contributors to um, the 150 basis points of margin, you know, erosion in the first half. Um, now we would normally we would normally accommodate that increase in freight costs in our margin, but it has happened quite uh, quite rapidly. And, you know, I think uh, most of our rates are contracted, but we, we have seen, you know, call it to a 50 to 100% change in the amount of spot that we would use. And that's been enough when spot rates have been multiples of a contract rate, it's been enough to, you know, to cause an erosion um, in our margin. You know, it's literally half the, the 150 uh, that we've seen um, in margin decline. And then the other bit in margin decline we talked about was brand and product mix, which is a combination of, of a couple of things. One, just as you have a relatively faster growing uh, brand contribution from Noel Leeming and Torpedo 7, those are both lower margin businesses versus uh, the warehouse and warehouse stationery. We're seeing a, 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 a decline in the average margin across the business. And then also with online, there is... Um, there is the impact of, uh, in some cases, not being able to send, sell as high a margin product online. Typically, we've sold less apparel, for example, which would be the, you know, one of the highest margin categories we have within the warehouse. Does <clears throat> bringing all that together, does that sort of change your decision on what you stock and, and what you look to bring in? Because obviously the footprint of, say, whiteware or TVs to a container is very different to products for warehouse stationery or grocery items. So um, sort of how does that come into your, your planning going forward? No, it, it doesn't really because at the end of the day, we exist to, to serve our customers. And, you know, whilst there, you know, we do look at, you know, the elasticity of demand. Um, and we, you know, that's more of an impact on pricing. And, uh, you know, so we've built a fairly sophisticated um, data science engine in the business that is, enables us to look at price elasticity. Um, and, you know, we've also structured, structured our range um, 
into sort of, you know, what we call price perceptors, then below that key value items, and then sort of more discretionary items below that. And so as part of what we're doing, we're, we are remixing the margins that we take on, the, on those items. And so, you know, key, key value items uh, uh, and price perceptors, we are protecting as much as we can from price inflation because, you know, that's the whole thing about the, the, the $18 Kiwi breakfast. You know, we believe that our customers uh, are, are, are entitled to be able to afford breakfast for their family. And so to be able to be 6 to $8 cheaper than the competition is a very important thing for them. And that, that's been well recognized with our customers. Equally, sort of value is, uh, is not just about price. And so, you know, if you were to think about a, a $5 toaster that lasts a year, compared to a $6 toaster that lasts three years, which is the better value, right? And uh, so we've put a lot of uh, improved price, uh, um, product quality um, and have really been recognized for improving our, our quality. You know, the, uh, the phrase that kept coming out was cheap shit from China, which is, uh, you know, as it relates to the warehouse. And so changing that perception takes time, but it's something we feel very passionate about and is also part of our sustainability values. Um, you know, to, to not replace products as frequently and to make things that last better. Um, the same goes through apparel and, uh, and various different homewares. And, and in terms of the liquidity side, does sort of the shipping delays and extra costs, does it cause you to run larger inventory or change your inventory decisions? It, it, it hasn't. Um, we haven't, uh, you know, we, we still have enough, I'd say, it's fair to say probably lead time in our, in our ordering and delivery of inventory that 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 hasn't hasn't changed um, that materially. We were already on a on a track of trying to increase that inventory turn, and we did get a you know point two times improvement um, in the in the in the last six months uh, to Jan. So it's um, but it's something we continue to watch. It's uh, you know hopefully we're through the worst of it, but even you know this, we're we're living right now through some disruption obviously in Shanghai. So. Um, uh, it's yeah, it hasn't been something we've we've had to do in terms of investing in more, and we'd expect inventory to still be at rel- you know on track to to come back a little bit um, once you adjust for what we call goods in transit at, at the year end as well. Jonathan, Nick, I wonder if we can just go back to the smart software or this um, quantitative model that you said you've been building and, and implementing, which helps with pricing across all your products. Because I think that's quite fundamental to the the change of the strategy that you're going, you're increasing the the value or the quality of your products, but you're also trying to price these more efficiently. You're trying to understand which products are selling and which ones are moving and therefore which ones you should get off the shelves quickly and replace with another product. And so I wonder if we just touch on a little bit more and, and you can discuss what the strategy there is exactly and, and what the software you're using to um implement it as yeah I, so a lot of it's been pro, about process change and uh, you know philosophically taking out at least three quarters of the items enables you to concentrate and give four times as much time to the remaining one so making sure you've got the right product and you know building our own direct sourcing so that you're able to spend more time making sure it's sourced correctly you know rather than buying sort of tactically we, we had 200 plus um, uh, suppliers in our Manchester business in our, our, our um, soft linens, um, we now have two. And uh, we, so we've made strategic agreements with the two of the three biggest mills in India, um, and they produce 
all of our programs. That gives us advantageous pricing because we're able to get volume discounts that were previously not acceptable to us. But they're also the best factories that give us consistency of quality. And so there's a sort of virtuous circle in that um, that enables you to put better quality in or reduce price buy better, which creates more volume, which in turn enables you to buy better. And so that's been very important. Um, you know, these, uh, you know, the, as I say, you know, data science has become vitally important as increasingly sort of knowing our customer has. And so, you know, we just launched in October um, our Market Club uh, loyalty program. Um, so, you know, that eventually will be a group-wide and beyond loyalty program. But, you know, modern retail, as as for most modern commerce, is about having first-party data. And as sort of Google and Facebook and, all, you know, all of those platforms ban cookies, then it's harder and harder to be able to buy that data from, you know, from, from those platforms. And so that will require us much more to, to be able to ensure that uh, we've got that first part of those first party relationships. And, you know, part of what we do there is make sure that they are not just rewarding, but we take out friction, make it easy. So, you know, frictionless commerce. Uh, fantastic. That's, um, that's helpful. Um, Look, I, I, I kind of want to get your views a little bit more on New Zealand as a whole. So we step back a little bit. Um, you as a business would see more of this in the high inflation, um, the high freight costs and shipping costs than, than most other businesses. So as, as a country as a whole, how do you think um, we go about sort of handling this? And you made a comment that maybe we're at the worst of the freight, but we may not certainly be at the worst on the high inflation. So is there a pathway that we need to, um, that we can focus on us to get through this period? There's a number of different answers to that. There are certain sectors like grocery where, you know, the, hopefully the uh, the gravy train is coming to to, to an end and uh, customers are not going to be ripped off the way they have been. Um, and, you know, we want to be uh, fair competition. You know, it, it, inflation, I think, will, you know, will, you know, central banks have proved to be quite adept at controlling inflation since they've been allowed to since GFC. So, you know, I think that certainly what we can see is 18 months, there's going to be uh, massive pressure on inflation, but we think it's going to stabilise. We think it's uh, more than anything else, it's a bounce back of demand after constricted demand through COVID, but but will we'll eventually come back. Um, so, you know, uh, whether uh, container shipping prices ever drop that much, uh, you know, increasingly, we're anticipating carbon pricing, for example, being a, a, a structural on cost, and uh, we believe that's right. Um, but equally, you know, one of our big uh, elements of our carbon footprint, about thirty percent, is global shipping. And so, you know, we're not going to be able to unilaterally change the carbon footprint of the global maritime fleet. But, you know, predicted by around 2030, it, you know, 90% will have com uh, you know, started to convert to, um, to hydrogen. And, you know, the, the benefit of that is that you can make ammonia out of seawater and that then powers the hydrogen fuel cells. And so at a stroke, when that happens, the payback uh, uh, criteria for that's likely to be less than a year. So it's an expectation that the global maritime fleet will convert quickly outside of our control. There are other things that will continue to drive costs, for example, um, and it's for us to solve that. One of the big things we have in front of us is 
what we do to innovate our supply chain. And so it could be anything from automation to, you know, sort of optimization of loads to, you know, potentially like Amazon owning our last mile. Um, you know, that could look like an acquisition or it could look like a build. We're, we're, there's sort of that part of it is, is one of the immediate things in front of us. And we're starting to kick off that part of the transformation. Jonathan, do you want to add anything to that? Um, well, I think a few things I'd add would be yeah, having faith that uh, the RBNZ will get inflation under control. It, it's a, it's a, certainly a, a tough environment globally. We're not unique, as, as you know, foot know full well in terms of having this problem, but potentially in New Zealand, uh, you know, the, the signals can be, all the, all the tools that the RBNZ may be transmitted a, a bit more efficiently than in other environments. I mean, the, interestingly, the, the cost of borrowing, which only, you know, only impacts part of the consumer base, but that, um, by all accounts from the banks, say, they're saying that most of their mortgage rates have already peaked. So, you know, so that potentially gets a bit more headlines than, than it deserves. Uh, you know, fuel costs definitely, I think, would be one of the bigger impacts on our customer base in, in the warehouse and just about people's ability to budget um, how much money they have for fuel a week. But in terms of seeking value, you know, that's something that we, we would um, expect and has been the case in the past and elsewhere in the world that, you know, value retailer like us should perform well. I think the other interesting thing is around um, travel and as that opens up, uh, how, you know, how quickly New Zealanders get on planes and go overseas versus actually people wanting to come down here and spend money. And maybe we see a, depending on what the government does, but maybe we see a faster recovery and people coming to New Zealand as a destination because of all the, the things that we offer. Um, and also we've got some, we've definitely got some constraints over uh, some resource. You know, I think the tech, the tech side now we'd argue you can source anywhere in the world and not, and for them not to have to be in New Zealand. But when it comes to some skills around supply chain and in stores, um, you know, we typically have uh, have sourced some of that talent offshore. So hopefully that comes right um, soon as well. Jonathan, I just want to expand on the comment you made. Um, sometimes this environment can be beneficial to a value retailer, and I think that's a very good point. Um, throughout financial history, if you go and look at, look at um, recessionary periods where consumers come under more pressure, they don't have as much money, and they're, they're trying to save or maybe spend it on more, more value-type products. You can actually see share prices of certain uh, value stocks or value retail stocks outperforming relatively in this basis. If we look at um, where we are today, the concerns, this is more from a US perspective, but concerns of a recession in the US are starting to increase. Um, you know, various, um, various economists are saying maybe there's a 20 to 30% chance of, um, of a recession starting to de develop for 2023. A lot of this has been driven um, by the fact that we've got this high inflation which is causing cost pressures, but also um, interest rates are going up and, and various basically financial conditions are starting to tighten. Um, at a time of high inflation, and so what I what um, would be helpful, I guess, to touch on as it relates to the warehouse is: um, Do you think if we move into a recessionary environment, that um, particularly say the red sheds 
um, warehouse core product can really outperform um, other retailers in New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, typically it has been the case, and you know, there are there's a whole contingency of our customers um, who you know really don't have a choice um, to trade down further from the warehouse because of where, where they're physically located. It's going to be you know uh, interesting to see Costco come in, for example. That will take a chunk of business out of all sorts of retailers in West Auckland. You know, pack and save, but you know, as well as ourselves, and you know, they they sell electronics. They sell printer inks. Um, you know they're going to take a big chunk out of you know people like Health Two Thousand as well. But you know strong on the sort of vitamins and, and wellness side. Um, you know so you know they will probably never get to more than four or five stores in New Zealand would be my guess. Um, but you've got IKEA coming as well uh, at some point. So increased competition. Uh, you know, sort of interestingly, if you think about a US perspective, you know, the, the rapid increase in, in fuel prices, you know, is a disincentive to go to physical stores. Um, and so there's a potential driver for e-commerce. Um, I think, you know, increasingly you're going to see some, you know, sort of uh, fuel, uh, fuel um, levies on top of uh, the, the cost of delivery. I don't think that will be fully eaten up. Um, but people, we were already seeing traffic re- reductions, um, but people being much more purposeful about their their visits so that when they do go into stores they they spend they spend more and the average transaction value goes up um, but they also research more heavily and so you know you using your websites as a as a way of identifying value and ha- how do you present that value is also very important and then do you find the patterns between sort of regional and i suppose metro slash urban customers are different and especially with those sort of pressures uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we have a lot of stores in rural New Zealand. Um, you know, if you think of Kmart as probably our nearest competitor, they've got 25 stores. And so, you know, sort of possible and uh, penetrated in, uh, in 25 locations that we are. You know, you're never going to put a Kmart in Alexandra or Gore um, because they can't support two, and it's not it wouldn't be profitable for them to do so. Particularly not with their sort of restricted, uh, sort of almost like sort of large specialty model. And that's you know, I, I mean, our number one search product is motor oil, for example. And so we're a community service in places like that. Uh, think about Kaikari or Kaitaia. Uh, you know, far north, uh, it, it'd be more. Expensive example and so we, we do perform a social service as well um, and sort of shipping motor oil by via e-commerce difficult because it's fairly heavy and uh, you know but it's not very profitable to do so so and typically you need it when you need it um, so you know there's a lot of rival things that go on it would be nice to get some tourists back in the country and you know to the point earlier pre-covid Tourists brought around about 16 billion into the country, and Kiwi spent about 12 billion abroad. So, net positive uh, uh, of the country opening up. How that happens, uh, you know, in terms of the phasing of that, interesting. But it would be nice to see some people back in Queenstown, for example. Um, that's a, a store and a, a town that's really doing it tough. And, and in terms of the, the data that you get from those sorts of um, the regional mix and the urban mix, do you get a sense, Jonathan, that uh, yeah, as the RBNZ's raised rates, as costs have gone up, that there's any, or, or do you have any good leading indicators, I think is another way to ask it, of, of how the economy's actually doing in a broader sense? 
I, th- I think uh, broad observation, definitely doing it tougher in, in urban centres because of um, the greater costs of uh, living pressures in particular. You know, I'd say that, that, that living costs, rental costs, um, housing costs become a much more meaningful factor there. And then you've also got on the, on the, on the plus side, you know, obviously a, a, a rural environment that's actually doing pretty well with record high uh, dairy payout, and that doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere but one way for now. Um, so it's it's um, it's yeah, it's it's definitely quite a a, a bifurcated sort of uh, market in that sense. Um, Jonathan, Nick, we we touched on the market um, a couple of times, but only at a very high level. Um, I wonder if you can actually say what the market is exactly, um, where the products that sells come from um, and, and how Warehouse um, earns the revenue or earns its um, income from this business? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the market, it, we own a few products that uh, we own inventory on, but predominantly we host other people's products on our platform. And so part of building that has been about uh, building the ability to ingest automatically and seamlessly other people's products. So, you know, think of, you know, I don't know, the Iconic or Catch or whatever. Um, So, you know, sort of a a vital part of it is that. But, you know, then the, you know, the real challenge is in terms of how do you, um, how do you get customers to transact on that platform? And, And so that's the, the most important part of the uh, of the startup, uh, you know, is you know bu- building the platform, getting products on it, and we now have three million plus uh, uh, products on it. Uh, you know, six thousand three hundred brands, twenty two percent New Zealand on- online shoppers transacted with us on the, in the last twelve months, uh, and that translates to about half a million active customers. Um, so we're, we're, we've got the product, we're trafficking it. By the way, we can at any stage open the floodgates and fairly seamlessly get up to 20 million products. Um, but, you know, we're a little cautious of that because we want to maintain quality control. Um, it, you know, if you look at Amazon, it's almost self-defeating the extent to which we have, uh, they have products available. Um, you know, you can literally find anything, but finding what you want is becoming increasingly challenging. And so, we're, you know, that curation is very important. Um, and those customers that, uh, you know, uh, um, have um, transacted with us, they're spending more. We spend, they spend nearly 20% more than, than the, you know, in the first half this year than they did the first half last year. Um, and that sort of was 50% more um, online sessions. So, you know, to give you an idea of the scale, 30 million online sessions uh, will go into that, um, uh, that sort of 100 million plus GTV. Um, if you think sort of orders of magnitude, you know, Catch is a sort of New Zealand and Australian platform. Uh, their share of, uh, uh, of that 600 million that is their GTV, about, about 100 million by that reckoning as a population penetration would be New Zealand. They don't publish that. But, um, you know, so we think that, you know, orders of magnitude comparable with Catch, uh, opportunity to expand into, in, into Australia, should we choose to do so as, as a fairly seamless uh, 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 growth platform, you know, we might cho- choose to do that with a partner. 
and we've had a number of those conversations. Um, but it's most important to us as part of that whole ecosystem play. And, you know, you, ultimately, that will be the one platform that is how our customers come into the, the market ecosystem, which will be how you shop um, at, uh, you know, warehouse, Nolimin, Torpedo 7, and any number of those additional partners. What, what percentage of your sales would be coming from um, people purchasing products sold by third-party retailers versus someone coming onto the market, buying something, and it happens to be from a no-leaming or a warehouse store? Yeah, it's a, of the market business, it's now more than 80% is third-party. Uh, you know, we, when we first launched it, a good sort of third of it was uh, coming from group properties. But as we've expanded the assortment, uh, higher and higher percentage comes from those third parties. We've, we've rolled in um, the, our one-day business under the market now, and so we, we sell to those customers directly as well. And some of that's first-party business. So we, we do own some in, the, in that. But the great advantage of the market is that, that that growth has come predominantly without having to invest in inventory, which you know reduces the capital uh, required, working capital required, and reduces the risk of margin degradation. So we just take a pass-through revenue. Um, and you know that in turn enriches our, our, our first-party data in terms of what we understand about those customers. And you know more and more, that becomes an opportunity to, you know, as you get traffic to be able to host an advertising platform. And so that's another revenue stream that uh, is starting to come on. You, you touched on the competitors of the catch and Iconic, but it's interesting you didn't mention uh, Amazon. There was a lot of concern, I suppose, originally when Amazon moved into Australia that they would become very dominant. Um, it doesn't seem that they have. I mean, Amazon are the Amazon are the third um, most traffic website in New Zealand, um, and they have been for five six years. They, you know, so far they haven't uh, haven't yet put in DC that would allow same day and next day shipping. Um, they, I'm sure they will at some point. You know, we're grateful to have had a bit of time to get our own house in order and you know get on with our transformation and build our own capabilities. But what what they will never have is uh, is stores that enable that whole omni-channel approach. And so there's no point in us trying to out Amazon Amazon. Um, so, you know, as we think about building the moat, one thing we can do is uh, be more convenient and know Kiwis better. And that's why the data strategy through the market club is important. That's why the stores as part of an omni-channel whole are important. And so that's a, you know, an essential part of what, what we do. And um, just so I finish off on the business model of the market properly, the third-party retailer would actually pay for the shipping and arrange all the shipping and the logistics of that, and you're just taking a fee or a, a percent commission off the value of the product that's sold. They, they arrange the shipping. Under the paid part of Market Club, uh, for $6 a month, uh, they'll get free shipping, so we subsidise that. We have a, a, an offset arrangement with, with those suppliers, which are, obviously comes under commercial terms, so I'm not going to tell you what that is, but um, it it's, uh, enables us to build uh, you know, a, a loyal, more engaged customer base. And you go back to that prime-enabled search uh, statistic from the US to understand why that's important. Okay, fantastic. Um, I'm getting through the questions I had, and we're coming up towards the end of the hour. Um, but, Nick, Jonathan, is there anything else you wanted to, to say to our audience before we wrap up? Do you want to talk a little bit about how we, we think about the valuation of the stock, Jonathan? 
Yeah, look, I think I think um, look, our observation would be over the years. We, uh, you know, we, when, when we had a free flood of 20%, certainly before foodstuffs selling down there additional 10, we have been largely a retail-held um, stock and it's been, the valuation has been supported by, by dividend yield. We have, you know, we have made some changes to our, our dividend policy. So we moved, moved from paying, um, uh, you know, uh, 75 to 85% uh, dividend to paying more than seventy, and um, we we also have had the benefit of of foodies selling down, and we are much more focused on all the things that Nick's talked about in terms of investing in the business and you know, the core part of the business, and integrating these brands that we we have accumulated over the years. And so I think there's a much stronger recurring earning, you know, growth story growing within the business. Um, and so we're, you know, we we have seen an improvement in our register, and that's the goal is to continue to see that and to move. Um, you know, we're we're very close to being have been very close to being in the fifty. Getting back in the fifty would really help with um, with increasing, you know, a decent mix of institutional and retail um, shareholders. And um, you know, I think when we look at ourselves on a valuation metric, uh, and you know, whether it's PE or EBIT or um, uh, you know, any other sort of uh, sales type multiple uh, versus other competes globally, we, we, we definitely feel like we, we're at a discount, which, which is you know, what we're trying to close. Fantastic. And just um, for the audience, when, when Jonathan's talking about free float, he's talking about the percent of stock that is not held by large cornerstone shareholders. So um, the warehouse only had 20% of the shares available were being sort of daily traded between a combination of institutional investors um, and, and retail investors, and 80% was held by large strategic shareholders. Um, and so what that tends to mean is that there's not a huge amount of daily volume, which um, sometimes or, or often leads to a discount in the share price, but that is improving uh, a little bit now. We had a 10% sell down from, from foodstuffs, so it's now a 30% free float, and, and actually the market cap in general on the stock's been improving over the last couple of years, which means the dollar value or free float traded is getting better. Uh, well, thank you very much, Nick and Jonathan. It's been great to have you on the show and uh, we've really enjoyed talking to you um, and we'll look, look forward to speaking to you next time. Our pleasure. Thanks for inviting us and uh, thanks for the coverage. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Mark. This has been The Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service, the NZ Funds Advised Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.